and the lady that we just employed, um, I think it was about two months ago, she was saying for the first time she, she was actually driving a trolley at checkers because she could never afford, she, she would just go buy one or two things because she didn't have it. But for her to say that for the first time now, I got to drive a trolley and I thought to myself, I, I, I took that. So, I mean, I drive a trolley every time I go to spa. And for her to say, like, it's the first time in years where I can actually, I was, I was actually smiling going through the aisles now with a trolley saying I can actually drive through the aisles and choose what I want. And I, that's when it hit me that, you know what, it's not even about the money. It's episode one of season three of the We Move Experience podcast, the podcast where you learn practical and effective ways of dealing with setbacks on your path to success. I'm your host, Dumelo Peani, and on the show today, we have the award-winning SABC News reporter and entrepreneur, Lerato Fegisi. She's a media and communications graduate from the Nelson Mandela University with over a decade of experience in TV and radio producing and broadcasting. Since 2015, she's been one of SABC's leading reporters in the Eastern Cape. She shares with us her number one reason for starting a company with almost no experience in that field and her innovative approach to journalism in this fast-paced digital era. She also sheds light on how to empower others with limited resources and how you can change lives without waiting to make your first million. So without wasting any time, let's jump straight into the conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Sissy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dumelo. Hi, hi. How are you? I'm very good. Um, yeah, just to break off the ice, I thought I should start... Um, with a quote of yours, with something that you you might remember, where you said, um, "I am inspired by life and in endeavor to ensure that I live a legacy through my life, being an example to uh, to others, being a catalyst of change." Like when when I hear that um, quote, I'm asking myself, from when you wrote it till today, do you s- still share the same sentiments? And why is it so important for your life to influence the others in a positive way? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think I wrote that like maybe four or five years ago for something I went to speak at. They wanted a little quote that I live by. Mm. And uh, um, I think over the past few years, I was actually reflecting on this um, a few days ago. I turned 36 and I was reflecting on my life from when I started realizing the importance of living an impactful life until now. And I was asking myself, has my life really been impactful? Um, like you said earlier on, obviously, uh, I work as a journalist. And one thing that I realized about being a journalist is that um, it gives you a lot of fame. But the question I've been asking myself is that, am I being impactful? You know, so I have perhaps gained some popularity. People know me sometimes when they see me on the streets. But the question I was asking myself now going forward is that, has my life uh, over and beyond just being famous, have I had an impact on people? Mm-hmm. I think there are to a certain extent people that have impacted but I just had this nudge in my spirit to just that I can, I can still do more. Um, that beyond just being on television and being known as a reporter, there's so much more to me beyond that. And that part of me is about influence and impact and inspiring people. So I think the next chapter of my life now is dedicated to that. And although I'll carry on being a journalist, I won't stop. But over and beyond that is just to tap into other gifts that reach out and inspire and also influence and impact people's lives. So. I still have a long way to go, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, 
in my observation of your career and I might have known you for as long as you've been uh, working for the for, for ASABC but what mm. I wanted to ask you is um, in terms of covering really major stories such as when there was fees must fall and really exciting times such as when we won the, the Rugby World Cup and there was a parade in, in uh, Gabecha and to, to think such as the, the government elections, what do you find most challenging and what has been the difficulties you faced uh, during a report? I think starting off with fees must fall, the tough part about that is that you've got hostile students, right, who have got um, a worthwhile plight that you must cover because I think that fees must fall is very legitimate and the students had to protest at that time because of what they were facing. Um, so you have hostile students who are obviously not very happy, who want to voice their concerns, and sometimes that may get violent. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they want to necessarily burn down the school, but I think they had had enough of just screaming and not being heard. So as a journalist, you sent into that hostile environment where you have to have the voice of the students who are protesting and also have to get management. And sometimes students um, are not so receiving of you because they think that the moment they go on TV, the very next two hours, someone will come from national government and solve the problem. Yes. And it's not as immediate as that, um, as impactful as media is, but sometimes it takes time to get to those in power. So I think sometimes the hostile environments that we are exposed to, because you understand that we go into these environments, we're not surrounded by police, we're not having wearing any life vests, we literally are going as we are sometimes going as a female-only team into such hostile environments with the aim of just informing and educating people what's happening at that time at the university and also making sure that the students' plight is heard. So that was quite scary for me. Um, one of the first, I think, the big stories that I covered was Fees Must Fall and also the, um, the, how big it was. It wasn't just only in NMU that was protesting, it was nationwide. Yes, so true. there was also that pressure to make sure that as a reporting PE, I tell the story well because I could see what my other reporters were doing in Cape Town and Johannesburg and, and, and then I had to make sure that I tell the PE stories well because I represent the students in, the, in this sense because I was reco- talking about their plight. Uh, and then the Rugby World Cup, that was so much fun. But only, oh, there was so much fun that I think there was, I've never had so much fun doing so much reporting. It was tiring though, because you had to move from this place to that place and then jump on cars and jump on this and try find people to speak to. But that was a lot of fun. The only scary part there is obviously that the fans were excited. So sometimes they would want to speak on TV and they'll pull your jersey and you're trying to move out of that environment and go to the next place because you have to move like New Brighton's read and literally follow the bus the whole time mm. and not miss any action. Um, so that was um, that was quite fun, but also quite tiring and challenging in terms of managing the huge crowds we had at that time. And then the um, the election, that was tiring because I was six months pregnant when I was doing the elections last year. So that was tough, tough physically because I didn't sleep for like four days with a baby in my tummy in my last trimester. Uh, but with politics, you also have to trade very lightly and make sure that no matter what party you may be affiliated to or you may love, you mm. have to always remain neutral. So sometimes it's hard when you see um, the plight of people on the ground and the poverty people experience on the ground and then interview people supposed to help them and then they don't have any solutions. Uh, but even then, you've got to be objective. You can't come and say you guys are the bad government. That's sucking. Even though you're thinking that sometimes the journalists, mm-hmm. but you've got to remain neutral and, um, and unbiased the whole time. So politics are always sensitive because obviously as a human being, you've got your own opinion, but you've got to always remain neutral and just present the facts more than anything else. 
Yes, that's something that I, I, I noted and wanted to, to go deeper into, the contrast between um, your own opinion and um, what you have to report. Like when you're interviewing someone and you know exactly, especially politicians, that what they're saying is not what they're going to do. How do you cross the line between I want to let them tell their story, even if it's a lie, and I don't want them to to mislead people in front of or, or on my call where I'm the one who's reporting? Like, how do you thread between those lines? Because it could be really difficult, I assume. It's a really, really difficult thing. I think it takes a really seasoned journalist to be able to interrogate politicians because they know how to play the cards well. They know that when we go to speak to them, we're coming to get the facts out of them. And sometimes the facts aren't always a good prediction of what we're doing or not doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always, it takes, I think, uh, some time. I think I haven't really yet mastered that skill of interrogating politicians because sometimes, to be honest, um, it sometimes can backfire um, um, in terms of it backfiring and it impacting the family. Uh, luckily in PU, we're not at that stage where we're getting, journalists are getting killed for political stories. Mm. Um, but you want to escalate it to that far. So what I normally do to try and make it very conversational is that before I do the interview, I try and have just a very chilled conversation with the politician. And, and most of the time during that chilled conversation, they say more than they're supposed to say. So I, then by the time I interview them, I'm like, oh, like, when we were talking earlier on, you say, and then they literally open their eyes like, we're supposed to say that now. But then they caught 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 off guard because they're just like okay she was right because she heard me say that so that's what i've tried to do is that i try to create a good um interviewing environment but by talking about everything from cars to ice cream to this and then eventually delving into the real issues and then by the time we're talking about politics actually they're so calm they're so relaxed and then we get into the interview and then it's easier for me to jab at them with the hard questions as opposed to uh, opposing just arriving and then me just putting out your mic and saying, did you do this or did you do that? Yeah. Um, so I find the conversations before make quite a difference to make them also feel at ease because they always feel like we're coming after them. So once yeah. you talk and are a human being before a journalist, before an interview, I find like it, it calm, calms them down a bit. Mm. And I mean, now you mentioned the, the hostile situations that you guys have to face at times because when you interview um when you're doing your job, you sometimes the other or you sometimes putting your life in danger. And you had to cover the, the pandemic from the very beginning and to a point that you also caught, um, like tested uh, positive for COVID and it you took your work or like part of your work came home with you. And how was that whole experience? And I saw the report you made where you, you tried to, t- to take us through the process of you going for the first time and seeing how people were not taking the virus serious to a point where you were talking from also experience. How, how, how did you go through all that? It was T, tough with a capital T. Yeah. <laughs> tough. Yo, the pandemic, I'm so happy the numbers have gone down now. Not that the pandemic has stopped, but I'm really happy True, because yeah. it was really tough because I would see people saying, working from home, I'm safe and now I'm at home and now. And we were at that time where it was literally peaking. We were out in the field and getting the story done. I think the scariest time for me was when I challenged myself to try getting to Livingston Hospital, which was a a quarantine zone and a quarantine hospital at that time. And I wanted to get inside to actually try interview patients. Can you imagine how mad I am? And then um, obviously they didn't agree, but I got to speak to some doctors who work inside those wards. And I think when I heard the doctor story, a doctor who works in the, in the COVID ward, a doctor who works in ICU and then a specialist doctor. And when I got to hear their views of what's really happening, because obviously the media tells you one side, 
the Department of Health tells you once, when you speak to a doctor who says, last night I had 13 people and today I woke up with only, only 10. And then you realize how bad the pandemic is and they tell you that the age group is your age group is dying the most. And you're just like, and I'm still covering stories. So I think when I got to meet the doctors and interviewed them at the peak of the pandemic, that's when I realized, you know what, as much as we're covering this as a global story, but it, 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 it's hitting the grassroots now. I could get infected after this interview. I could not make it. I could have a tight chest. I could have a complication. I could take that home to my daughter and to my husband. Uh, so that was really, really tough. I think tough for me more than anything else because I wanted to educate because there was a lot of misinformation that time about how to contract it, how to heal it, does this help, does this not help, how to how to prevent it. So I wanted to make sure that I get enough information out because our primary job as journalists is to educate people. And there was so much misinformation, but in trying to educate, I was putting myself on the firing line. But I guess that's what journalism is all about. And I think when I eventually got COVID, I was like, you know what? I think this is when people say I'd rather, if, if I must die, I must die. That's the first mm. time I thought like, you know, I'm a journalist now where you say, you know what? If it means I die, I die on the job and then I die, I die on the job. But as long as people are informed and educated and then as long as lives are, and you're bringing the numbers down, if my news insert helps that, then so, but, but it was really tough. And to see people die. The one time we went to the stadium and the Minister of Health was there, when we got there, there was a body, three bodies being removed by a hearse uh, from 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 the from the stadium. Those people had died literally when we arrived. And I was just like, That's I don't know thing. if I can handle this journalism thing. <laughs> but you didn't wake up the next day and you go do another COVID story. And we're meeting mm. people all the time because obviously journalism is about interaction. You have to meet people, talk, interact. Uh, socialize. So there's no time where you're not meeting people. Everyone is trying to run away from people. We we're going to the people, and that was really, really tough. But such a such a such a lovely time. I think I've told my best stories during during the pandemic. Yeah, and I assume like um, although um, more some interviews are conducted via Zoom in a country like ours, it is not everyone who has access to it, and it must have been better to to go out there and still get the stories but that that um leads me to my next question of being a reporter in modern day where news whether they are fake or not or misinformation or not travel so fast how do you make sure that what you're reporting or what you're bringing either serves uh, or brings us a, a new angle at the same story that we've heard already earlier or that you're not repeating what everyone knows. Because really, by the time someone passes away or by the time something happens, we instantly get it on our phones. And your job is still important. How do you make sure that people still find what you're doing uh, relevant and uh, more trustworthy compared to sources of people who are like, I thought I heard I, it's a hearsay type of uh, reporting on social media? Um, I think... One, the SABC is very much strict in terms of making sure we don't report fake news. So um, when I got into a story, my script has to be checked by our local editor and then also a national editor so that the fact that it go out into the public eventually in terms of the news coverage is all authentic and facts uh, in terms of number statistics, uh, rates, infection rates, all that is authenticated from the national office before it goes on to national TV. So there's never time where I'm telling a story that I've made up where there's people that have died, number of infections, people that, where people stay in the Eastern Cape, geographic, demographic, all that, all that is checked in Johannesburg. Yeah. But in terms of telling the different story, I think 
I'll give you a good example. There was a, a stadium, uh, the, the stadium here in PE was used as a, a quarantine, a quarantine um, stadium for people that got infected but couldn't um, quarantine their home. So if you were COVID positive and you didn't have space in your house, you could go to the stadium. So that was like the big story that came out that the stadium now, which has been this national monument and played national games, international games now is a place where people can go for COVID. So I saw that story and I was like, okay, I wonder what it's like to actually be inside there because this is a stadium. So people inside there, how are they living? How are they getting by? You, you, you're around people you don't know from, from, from anywhere and you now have to stay with them until you get better. So yeah. what I did, I got a source, um, the MBDA was the one in charge of the stadium. So I got the manager to link me up with people inside who were COVID positive. And I literally would teach them how to do interviews and I'd interview them from inside. And then when there were, uh, there would be times where they're having a prayer session and, and I'd ask this lady, when you have a prayer session, please record it for me. There was a little boy who's about seven who became um, there, you could say a little pastor who used to pray for all the, all the people that were sick, but he, he was there because his mom couldn't keep him anywhere else. So he became a highlight. So that for me was the first time where I literally didn't even go inside the stadium, but using these two or three people who were actually staying there and interviewing them from the stadium and telling them, okay, put your phone like this, turn your phone like this, do a selfie, and take a picture of this. I want to see your food. I want to see where you guys stay. I want to see what you guys do in your spare time. Mm. And that story actually won me an award for uh, innovation. So that was the first time I actually thought out of the box where there was a story that went out in terms of everyone knowing about the stadium. But I was like, okay, what is, and then, the, then the journalism in me then said, you know, what, what, what other side of the story that everyone knows about now can I tell different? So you always have to constantly think out like there is no box. Maybe a story may go out that this and this happened, but always look and say, okay, what haven't they told of the story? And there's mm. always another side to it. There's always a different mm. element to it that you can tell. And I think that's when the creativity and innovation that I think modern journalists have to have comes to play. Yeah. And I mean, what you just said right now, kind of justifies why it took me over two seasons to gather the confidence to ask you for an interview because ah. <laughs> it's like interviewing people who who already know how to like you know it's like interviewing an expert in what you what you're doing because I don't call what I'm doing journalism at all because it's nothing compared to that but the confidence to know this person has interviewed so many people and does it correctly and here I am trying to interview you and get because maybe <laughs> and you do a great job <laughs> thanks for the compliment I should just call it I'm having a conversation I think that takes my mind away from the fact Yay, that I also want to get chills. yes I just want to get the most out of you but yeah um I think we could really spend quite a lot of time on your journalism career but what sparked the most interest in me to interview you is your business side your entrepreneurial skills yeah. and um how you always they're also thinking out of the box I think how I got uh introduced to it was when you you started uh, a company that cleans sneakers. It started there for me. And I was like, oh yeah, I hate cleaning sneakers. This is something I could do. And even now when I was uh, in South Africa, like I was in PE last year, first thing I did when I got to PE, I was like, I know who does this. I called you and made sure that I get my sneakers washed. But like, can you tell me how did you venture into that and why cleaning services to begin with? Um, I won't even take the, the glory for that. That was literally my husband. I always say, like, my husband, he's the thinker, and then I'm just the birther because he comes up with the most amazing ideas, and then I'm just like, okay. And I, I love doing, so I'm always like the action girl. I love getting things done. So he was, the, sorry? 
I remember, I remember the, the phone cases. Carry on. Yeah. From that was him as well. Yes. Yeah. So we've, we've been hustling. Shay, my husband and I have been on the hustle. So he was just like, just randomly one day came back. I was like, what if we start washing sneakers? And I was just like, I've never thought of that. But when he said that, somebody in me was like, you know, give this a try. So we've been doing that for the past, I think, two or three years. And then this year, last year, May, he was like, wouldn't you like to have a cleaning company? I was like, I don't know where I'd start if I had a cleaning company. I've got no mm. workers. I don't know what utensils I'd buy. And then the more he said it and the more he'd say, you know what, we're already cleaning, we're already cleaning sneakers. We might as well start cleaning people's houses. And um, we have some property in PE and we've got a lady who goes, goes and cleans that. So he was like, mm. we've got someone who can start for us. So randomly the one day I was lying in my bed and I just went onto Google did this like Chipanyana p- uh, pamphlet and send it to like four people like randomly. I had not bought any equipment. I had not told myself I'm going to start. But I was like, hey, let me just see what people will say if I do start this. Literally like within like four hours later, people are like, can I please book you for tomorrow? And I'm like, I don't have any brooms. I've got yet. no mop. <laughs> I've got no workers. <laughs> I was just playing, wait. But obviously now you can't say that to people because they think you really are ready. Mm. And then literally within like two, uh, a day after I did that poster, two days later, we got our first client. And um, I used the same lady that I spoke about earlier on. And that's how it's grown. And it's grown so well. It's called Treat Cleaning Services. So we do everything related to household cleaning, um, from washing to ironing to windows to uh, wardrobes cupboard cleaning anything that's related to our house cleaning we get that done and also including the sneakers as well so mm. that will be turning a year on the may 22nd it's been really going well i think there is definitely a demand for it there's a market for it um and i'm really um encouraged by its growth and also i think the variety of clients we're getting now is really what's encouraging mm. me the most and one thing that you're never shy on is um sharing testimonials or feedback from your clients and um, I wanted to ask how significant is that especially in a field where you're dealing with people's personal spaces or belongings how how important is it to share that people are satisfied with what you're doing and you're doing it with respect that this is their own space yeah I think to come into someone's home like I was thinking um, most of the clients we've cleaned whose house we've cleaned they they, a few have asked, is my stuff going to be safe? But I think when someone asks me that, I'm always like, yo, we're actually bringing a total stranger into your house. And sometimes people aren't there because they're working. They literally are living, leaving all their belongings in mm. our trust. Um, so a testimonial for me is always good because it serves as a good referral. I think when people hear other people say that, you know, what Dumelo's show is, is, is good because of A, B, and C, it gives more, more, more strength and more, I think, more clout also to the authenticity of what you're doing. I think like when people come and say, I enjoy your job, I enjoy what you're doing, you do a thorough job, it gives another person just the encouragement to try you out as well. So I always try every now and then just to put the comments and to ask me, please comment on what you're doing at Pitch yes. Treat because I think that's how you get word out. I think it's the cheapest form of advertising as well, cheapest form of marketing. Um, I think word of mouth is so powerful. And I think if you can utilize it through social media, and I think that's actually how we've got most of our clients. It, it, we do have a page that's running on Facebook, but I think word of mouth and people say, you know what, I've used them. They're really great. Mm. And that's what actually is, has, has helped us a lot because we don't have like a huge campaign running on, on Facebook and or billboards around PE. Mm. It's just been doing the job properly and doing it excellently. And then that person then passing that kind of encouragement, that kind of positivity onto our next future clients. Yeah, and uh, just one last question on this. When it comes to, to 
uh, employees? Do you still use that one worker? I think I saw recently that you uh, got a little bit of um, maybe empowerment in terms of you, you got more people or I don't know in what sense if they're, they're casually there or they're permanently there. But like what I appreciate is that I see the growth and what it does to, your, to the first thing we started with, you being a catalyst of change in other people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, we have got more people. And I think, you know, the one thing for me that um, with this business, I think it's everything else to want a business um, because you're going to make money. And I think obviously with every business, that's your objective mm. um, to make profits. And we've been making that. But I think over and above that, like my husband and I always say, over and above that, I think a business is there to solve a problem. Um, and when you solve a problem, money then just follows you. So I think the number one um focus for us has never been to try to make billions from this company although I know it will one day but the one thing was for us to solve a problem the problem of unemployment especially among young 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 women in the township and most of our workers all of them actually come from the township they all are mothers or sisters and to know that whatever amount we're paying them on a daily contributes to the well-being of their kids puts food on the table that supersedes I think any million will ever make or any uh, amount of attention or, or marketing we'll ever get um, to know that someone can sleep at night putting food on the table and um, that for us the greatest is satisfaction the lady that we just employed um, I think the, uh, about two months ago she was saying for the first time she, she was actually driving a trolley at checklist because she could never afford she, she would just go buy one or two things wow. because she didn't have it. but for her to say for the first time now I got to drive a trolley and I thought to myself, I, I, I took that. So, I mean, I drive a trolley every time I go to spa yeah. and for her to say like, it's the first time in years where I can actually, I was, I was actually smiling going through the aisles now with a trolley saying I can actually drive through the aisles and choose what I want. And I, that's when it hit me that, you know, what, it's not even about the money. It's not even about the, the, the greatness of treat, but to hear such stories that people's lives are being changed, that kids perhaps are getting school shoes and there's food on the table. And above all, these people's dignity is restored again because unemployment rips away your dignity. Mm. But to know that these women now, they, they see themselves worthy. They can buy themselves perfume. They can buy themselves dresses. They can look at themselves and see themselves as worthy people. That not, Nothing compares to that. that that's, that's stuff that money can't buy. So that's what keeps me going. And when it's tough and it's quiet, and that's what makes me push clients to us to come and clean so that lives can be touched. And I think that's, that's where my heart is more than anything. Yeah, I mean, that, that's very inspiring because in a sense, when we think about helping other people, we really think about in a very major scale that I need to get myself first, um, the success I need, therefore it can translate to helping others. Meanwhile, at times you can take others with you on your journey and it might not even cost you anything in terms of if you, you're able to think, uh, think out of the box or think of ideas that involve others while you're growing, you can grow with them because you're saying your, your, your company is slightly less than a year old, but that impact alone, even if it's just one person or a few people, I think it's enough to go by and to keep you working hard on growing the brand. And amongst other things that you do, there's one that, uh, speak, I mean, I know that you're an MC that hosts events and a storyteller, but um, being a youth life coach, it's something that I think is new to some people. I've heard of life coach in general. Can you tell me what that entails and what that for you means? Um, that actually started a few years ago. I love young people. Oh, I think like my heart comes alive. If I'm around young people, like that's where that's everything in me just comes alive. I really love young people. And I think 
given the right environment and right exposure, they really could change things going in the future. Mm. Um, so life coaching is really just about um, focusing on, I think my number one focus is on career guidance. That's what I've seen really lacking. Um, where I think um, our curriculum um, is kind of failing our young people uh, because we are, we are studying um, subjects that our economy is not going to need in 10 years' time. Mm. So mine has been over and above just uh, motivating them to study hard, to have good friends, to, to lead, lead healthy lives in terms of potential sex and and My focus has been to say in 10 years' time, this matriculant who has chosen the worst subjects is she going to become a statistic again? So I think my focus has been to say, what careers is our country going to need in 10 years' time? And are we preparing our grade 12s to meet those demands? Because if we're not, we're going to have a lot of kids in university, but they love unemployed graduates. And in a lot of, in an unemployed country, our, our unemployed rate now is at 45%, which means very soon we'll be half the population is going to be unemployed, which is so scary. And the majority mm-hmm. of those are young people. And key to that is that what I found is that within the school curriculum, these kids are being told to take subjects that sound right, that sound good, that sound mm-hmm. exciting, but they're not becoming employed because our economy doesn't need that. Our economy doesn't need more HR. Our economy doesn't need more this and that and that and that. Our economy needs um, engineers. It needs architects. It needs mechatronics. It needs robotics. It needs coding people. It needs people in software development because that's where the economy is going and globally the country is going. So yes. for me, it was just beyond just exciting them, which I think anyone can do. A motivational speaker can excite you but they've got to transform your thinking because a transformed mind changes the world, not just someone who's excited. So beyond just exciting them with making them shout and say, I'm the best, I can win, but to say, okay, let's really now zoom into your life. What are you studying? Where are you going? Do you know when you're going next year? What do you want to study? Why do you want to study this? Will this get you a job? Won't you get you a job? If you're not going to be employed, what will you be doing? So that's where my life coaching comes in, where I want to, I think definitely this year, adopt about 10, 10 pupils. I did it about four or five years, but I now will just do it on a more one-on-one basis. But I want to do this is adopt 10 young girls from disadvantaged schools who are academically strong and mm. get them mentoring and then try to get them scholarships and because obviously they'll be academically strong, but scholarships in, in careers that will make them employable in five or 10 years' time so that we can just do what we can to decrease the youth unemployment, which is just so scary. Yeah, and I mean, since starting this... um this podcast that I've had a few people hit me up on me being a mentor, which was quite surprising because I didn't know in what direction do they want me to mentor them in. I've had um, some people who um, were in a similar position as one of my previous guests in terms of not having funding and I've tried to help where I could and maybe connect them to the right people. I've also had ones where like, yo, look, what you're doing inspires me and I'd like to start a podcast. And I took them through the process. Like, do you want to do this or do you think this is fun for now? And we went to a point where some of them are about to start. And I, I don't count that as mentorship because I don't think about it, but in general, it's the few things of sharing what I've seen, what I've known and Mm -hmm. giving it to the next person. And I think that is something that, um, that I mean, um, even off air, I should definitely get myself in contact with you to see what I can do from where I am. Cause I think I might not have the resources in terms of finances, but we know people who know people and that is already capital in itself. Powerful, powerful. Definitely. I think, 
like and the fact that now that they've started and they they came to you wanting to start and now after being mentored by you, you have people that say I'm going to do it. So you're doing a, a remarkable job for someone to leave the excited, inspired um, part of life to the actual doing. That's mm. huge, and you can't you can't downplay that because it takes so much. To, I mean, everyone can be excited. All of us can dream. Everyone can want to take over the world, but to actually start and get in and get you, get into the deep and get your hands dirty, that means you've done something right. You've inspired them in the right direction. So you can also be so proud of yourself that you're doing something great. And like you're saying, human beings are the greatest capital we have, and we have got contacts. And if those contacts can help another person, then why not utilize them? So kudos to you for that, and keep on doing that. We need more young people to to usher the next generation into even greater heights than we have reached. Yeah. And yeah, in wrapping it off here on the show, we have like um, a rapid fire session with a few questions. Um, I used sure. to have 10 and ask for people to choose five. Uh, for this season, I chose five that sticks. And okay. I'm just going to ask you these five questions. You can answer them in one word answers and a full uh explanatory answer or uh, in any way you wish it's um yeah so these are the five questions that i have the first one says if you're failing to be consistent either in your personal or workspace uh what other attribute helps you to get back on track um i think discipline and commitment to the goal okay go and um give us your all-time favorite your heart right now and what is on your radar when it comes to books, podcasts, or documentaries? Just three that fit the description. Three Mac, three podcasts, Mac G. <laughs> <laughs> really enjoy Mac G. He's actually solo. I think that's his co-anchor. They're yeah. really, really funny. My, my husband is obsessed. I wasn't really watching him, but then I watched one recently, and I was like, this guy's actually pretty good, and he's actually quite entertaining. So yeah. Mac G is really, I think, he, I think he's done a really good job in terms of podcast space, and he's growing really well. I'm currently reading a Will Smith's book, lovely, lovely book. Um, getting to see a new side of Will Smith, which is just so inspiring. Mm. Thinking as a human being. And what else did you ask me, sir? What uh, documentaries. One? You can give two or three of the same thing, but if you have any documentary at touched you in the last Do- documentary, you know, the, that that um twiddle, twiddle, chindle thing that that oh, the... that that didn't that didn't touch me, that scared me. <laughs> <laughs> Tinder, so, yeah. so goodness and when i saw that it was not because i've got daughters so i'm like ah. mm. so that that was quite scary but that was one i recently watched and i was like yeah this is quite this is quite real so i think those three yeah okay and the third question is um if you have the opportunity to deliver a message to your future self let's say 20 years from now what would you want uh, yourself to know about your current efforts that um I can I can do it. Yeah, I think sometimes I was thinking today like it, it, it's really tough to um so I'm like uh, there's something I was thinking about now when I was just in in in, in, the, in the lounge and I was thinking it it must be t- it's it, it tough for great people to great. I know that sounds weird, mm. but great people struggle because they they realize that the greatness has to be realized. Um and then at the same time they're so scared because they realize how great they can be and that's scary enough. Um, so I think I'll tell myself it's okay to be great and, and let the greatness shine and, and don't hold back uh, because um, it, it does work out in the end. Just 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 take the leap and, and, and go for the deep. Cool. I, I switched this question a little bit because uh, last season I asked if you could go back. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we all know what we would tell our younger selves, but if you'd meet the older you who's at a yeah. different point than you now, what would you say? Like, what did you tell them about what you thought life was at this moment? 
So yeah, uh, the fourth question says, if you could switch roles and you get to interview me, what one question would you ask me? Putting myself on the spot with this one. Putting yourself on the spot right now. <laughs> <laughs> what question would I ask you? Um, when I had met you, you were uh, a fitness coach at Virgin Active, right? Yes, but yes. Don't, I don't forget faces. So how did you transition from being that to doing podcasts and what led to you wanting to do podcasts? Um, funny enough, I'm still a personal trainer. I do it at a university uh, gym uh, in the city that I live in here in Germany. But um, same as many people during the pandemic, I had to ask myself a few questions as to how do I want to impact um, other people's lives? And um, I think it came from a point of, I've listened to many podcasts where extremely successful people were interviewed and I couldn't relate. I was like, when I Oprah for, for Oprah, for instance, says, yeah, I, I used to be poor. I can't see it at all. Like I can't relate. I was like, yeah, but you're a billionaire. And in that sense, I started thinking, how about I interview people who are either just at the beginning of their career or ones who haven't figured it out or ones who are not yet where they want to be. And people get to listen to real stories from real South Africans that they could see around them and can relate to and that's where the idea started and whether or not I was going to do third season that was, I wasn't sure about the the main thing was let me start and see where it goes and right now I'm trying to really put effort even this season I even took leave from my actual work so that I can record wow. the other season that's how serious I want to go about it wow no you're taking your research I'm so inspired to even take off work to do it that means that you you know that this is something that you really want to do that's great no that's yeah, and the very, the very last one says, finish this sentence. The reason I cannot quit is because. There's too much at stake. There's too many people that I've got to inspire. I, 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 that's, that's the reason why I can't quit. I mean, that brings us uh, to the very end of the show. I might have left a few things, but I feel like I touched on the things that I personally wanted to know and the oh, things sorry. that that's not sorry. everyone can just see if they go on your social media. And I'm really, really sure. happy that you joined me on the show. And um, yeah, uh, to end it off, I'd like you to share uh, where people can find your either your, your services and you in personal, if you would like to share that as well. Okay, so I'm available on uh, Facebook at uh, Lerato Fekisim. I'm quite accessible on Facebook. And then on Instagram, I am Lerato Fekisim there as well. And then on Twitter, the same thing as well. And then, yeah, that's about it. And then, if you if you if you touch on the socials, sometimes I don't in, um, respond. You can write on my wall, <laughs> but mm. sometimes inboxes I really ignore them. Then I go up and like, oh, I've got so many. But if you write on my wall, I'll definitely respond. Yeah. Uh, so so I'm, um, thank you very much for joining me and also encouraging me to actually do this interview because I didn't trust myself, but I'm oh, happy. Oh, you did such a done. great job! Please carry on. Don't stop. Don't stop. That podcast must blow up and be huge, 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 huge. Don't stop. Keep on. You're so good. You made me feel so comfortable. I didn't feel nervous. Very natural. You really are good. Please don't stop. Carry on. Okay. Thank you very much for joining me on the show. Thanks, man. So have a super. You saw you in Germany. Uh yeah. Oh, great, man. Great. No, keep on keeping on here and tell our stories the way that you're telling them. You're doing a superb job. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I am humbled that you could invite me. Thank you for tuning in. And if you want to learn more from our previous guests, I have created a short and free PDF with the best lessons from all 10 guests interviewed in season two. 
follow the link in the show description to download a copy. To stay up to date with the podcast, follow at WeMoveXP across all social platforms and share your thoughts on this episode. So till next time, take care.